Coming up next, Dangerous Laughter by Stephen Milhauser. Ha ha ha. Hey everybody, welcome to The Booketing. My name is Nathan Alvarez and I'm your humble and obedient host. We've got Brandon Chastine, the scholar who's a baller of books right there. Hey. A little sunburned. Oh yeah, I've been outside working a lot. He's been outside working a lot. I enjoy it, Nathan. Brandon, you know what I enjoy is when you introduce the third person in our triumvirate of terror. His name is Jacob Kyle Mensel. That's me. Yep. Hey, how would you rate the level of danger of Nathan's laughter at the top of the show? <laughs> Out of what scale? Likelihood what? that Nathan's about to stab you like in the, the face. Victor scale? <laughs> <laughs> oh, ten. ten being he's already stabbing me in the face. And ten. One be- ten. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he stabs us in the face. <laughs> now, to be fair, I am, in fact, stabbing Brandon in the face right yeah, now. Yeah, he is. We're very good at concealing it, but he does it all the time while we're recording. <laughs> That's a little joke, folks. I don't stab Help Brandon me. in the face. <laughs> uh, you didn't say what Jake's title is. Uh, he is the pastor who is a master of reading. That's right. And Not a pastor who is the master, but the pastor who is a master. I think or, is a past- or is he the pastor who's the master? He's the master of reading, right? The pastor who's a master. The article matters. The article does matter. There is no other pastor who is a master quite like him. So he's the pastor who's the master of reading. Yeah. He's the one pastor who's a master of reading. The second article doesn't actually matter that much because there's only one pastor who's a master of reading. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's, there's I other people who are- exclusionary article from the very beginning. I don't need to be the master of reading. Right. You're not, you're not the only master of reading. We're I mean, three masters. I can think of at right. least two others. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The host who's the master of reading. Right. But that doesn't really trip off the- Tongue, the old, the old it esophagus. Kind of, it kind of trips off the tongue. Yeah, it does. It trips yeah, and stumbles actually. and falls and dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's make a case for this episode. Yeah. Ask not what Milhouse could do for you. Bringing out my great impression. It's like John F. Kennedy came back from the dead. Oh, that was great. Uh, wait, is John F. Yeah. We, should, we should just spend this whole episode just listening to and dissecting that Bob Dylan song. Oh, brother. Rub-a-dub-dub. <laughs> dub Why would we do that when we have a great book of 13 short stories that we can well, be talking about? That, that's, what I, that's what I wanted to get to, Jake. Not just the book, but I, but there's some people probably listening to this who haven't heard of Millhauser or hasn't read Millhauser. They just clicked on it because they like the bookening. Yeah. Or I thought maybe the very first thing right out of the gate we could do is make a case for why someone might be interested in this book and what, just in case we've got some noobs, some, some Millhauser. What's the word that I want? Noobs. 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 Yo, noobs. We've got some noobs, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Milhauser is one of those people that he's for cool. master. He's for cool people. He's the kind of person that cool people know about. And uh, he's the one that we feel comfortable talking about. Yeah. There, I mean, there's one other. The master of all the cool people. Yeah, but we but don't talk about it. Just in terms him. of like modern, yeah. well, and he's not—he doesn't even count because he's not alive anymore. He's not alive anymore, and I think that he, he runs circles around Millhouse. The other guy, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I just don't compare them. Yeah, yeah. I, they're doing two very different things. Right? It's Dennis so, Johnson. Yeah, Dennis Johnson and Stephen Millhouse are two of the the coolest. They're cool. Recent coolest writers, cats. Short Dennis, story writers. Dennis Johnson had the distinction of also, I think, being a genius. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Yeah. I mean, ruining his life. And Dennis, Dennis Johnson is much more depraved in his way than Milhauser. Argument, but he hits moments of beauty that Milhauser doesn't hit. Yeah, but Milhauser is also not going for moments of beauty. That's true. We'll talk about that. <laughs> okay, so what does Stephen Milhauser do? Let's just spend like two more minutes making a, a just a general like. I remember, actually, no. Go ahead. Well, I. You're going to be do a better job of defining this than I am because he's your guy. You introduced him to me. I think I introduced me him to, to him. both of you guys yeah, probably. probably. The only, um, I had heard of him once before, but I had not been driven to read him. But he, he very much specializes in, I would say, the uncanny 
but not in a like a a spectral way. Yeah, not in a spectral way, but just in a that that feeling of this. He's really good at a, he's he's just one of the most evocative writers I've ever read in terms of he, he can put you in a place, make you smell, make you taste, make you touch, and then upset you, uh, make you feel uncomfortable, or or push things to to a place that feel feels unsettling or interesting or you know but the funny thing is in a short story writer somebody who makes you look at the world in a different way right the weird thing about that though is even even as you say that i'm like that's a perfect description and yet it's entirely inadequate because it makes people think of the wrong things the wrong things that you think of twilight zone and twin peaks and it does have kind of of that feeling but it's like those things if they were dialed down and subtle and there was nothing overtly supernatural about them or overtly monstrous, but there was a lot of stuff that just sort of built. And it would be like if you took Twin Peaks and you cut out the murder, or you took Twilight yeah. Zone <laughs> and you kept the same feeling, but you cut out the alien menace or whatever it is. Yeah, he doesn't have to do something outlandish in order to evoke that feeling. And that's part of the genius of Milhauser, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't have to bring in a monster or a vampire or. No, there is the monstrous and the vampiric and the yeah, but human it, depravity too. It all, it all too. feels much more, well, I mean, there are places where he is super extravagant, but it also manages to feel more mundane or prosaic. Yeah, well, for one thing, he writes in a way that's very, I don't want to say mundane or prosaic because his language can be beautiful and ornate, but his characters are generally very low key and yeah. not emotional and not extravagant in the way that they express themselves. Except for well, when they're hitting an extravagant world. They're hitting, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's the extravagance of it, not a thing that it's hard to, well, it really is hard to put a finger on. And, there, there is a literary term for all this, but I'll get to that in my context. Oh, well, that's a good hook. Yeah. So. Well, maybe that's where we should go. I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah. Well, well I, I think we've done fun. enough introducing. Yeah. I mean, so he's, we'll, we'll briefly get to his bio at the end um, because it sounds like this natural transition into the main idea I want to deal with today. We're going to treat this more like a thematic class. Yeah. So what we've been tiptoeing around is this idea of what theorists and- oh, By the way, Brandon, you're the contextual context and you provide much needed context. Oh, that's right. Yeehaw, bang, bang, bang. In case people didn't know. Okay, go ahead. Um, you might want to dodge. Those bullets are probably going to come down. Yep. Uh, yeah. Here they come. Oh, oh, you got me. I'm dead. Yep, that's too bad. <laughs> that's a really weak gun for the bullet to come down so quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those um, Roger Rabbit guns, just the, the, the alive. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Kind of just melts down and- <laughs> Okay. Talk about a movie that doesn't hold up for kids at all. Um. No, it's an awful movie for kids. It's really just kind of an awful movie for everybody, but it's got its entertaining points, I guess. Go ahead. So I was reading an interview that he did for Transatlantica, and there are a couple things that I wanted to read. Disruption is at the center of many of my stories, and what is disruption, if not the sudden emergence of strangeness from the ordinary? And he says, I was trying to be as enigmatic as possible in these stories. Also, this guy asks, you know, what world are you? So he says, if I create fictional other worlds, it's only in order to penetrate the one world that interests me. And this interviewer says, well, what world would that be? Mm -hmm. And so he says, which world? (laughs) Says the astonishing one presented to me by my senses, the world which that I relentlessly question in my stories. It's true enough that I borrow myths when they suit my purposes. Here, among other things, I was trying to present a heaven that is desperately longed for. So this is apparently whatever story he's talking about here. But the most vital place of all is the structure that joins the two worlds, the ephemeral tower itself, the embodiment of desire. Um, and then earlier he had talked about, he's very obsessed with architectures, America's love of vastness, vast bridges, vast buildings, vast works of art to embody the vastness of the land. In other words, art's meant to reflect the world that we live in, but in a way to make it different. It disrupts that vision. And this actually has a very technical literary term behind it. It, can, it, it The history it comes from 1917 with the theorist, um, his name is hard to say, Shklovsky. Shklovsky was Victor Shklovsky. And he and Bakhtin were the fathers of what's called Russian formalism. Mm -hmm. This was in the early 1900s. And one of their main, so we've talked about Bakhtin before. We talked about his theory of the carnival. I know that we've done that in the past. But one of their other theories was the, the idea of defamiliarization. All this means, and so here's actually a quote, the purpose of art is to impart the sensation of things as they are perceived and not as they are known. The technique of art is to make objects unfamiliar, to make forms difficult to increase the difficulty 
in length of perception because the process of perception is an aesthetic end in itself and must be prolonged. In other words, it's to take a look at the world around us and to make it seem strange and unusual so that we can actually know it better. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so here's another quote. Um, This one's kind of technical, but in studying poetic speech and its phonetic and lexical structure, as well as as in its characteristic distribution of words and in the characteristic thought structures compounded from the words, we find everywhere the artistic trademark. So in other words, in all poetic language, you find this trademark. He's just trying to sound fancy. That is, we find material obviously created to remove the automatism of perception. In other words, the tyranny of perception, the automatic process of perception. The author's purpose is to create the vision which results from that de-automatized perception. And to, so in other words, to make yourself think about what you're looking at. That's all he's saying. And to make it seem unusual and strange to you so that a work is created artistically so that its perception is impeded and the greatest possible effect is produced through the slowness of the perception. In other words, to kind of slow down your ability to understand. So David Lynch fits perfectly into this category mm-hmm. of the defamiliarization. It's something that seems like you should know what it's doing and what it's about. It's like, it's kind of the end. So the other, and I think last time we talked about Milhauser, we talked a bit about the uncanny. Mm-hmm. And this is a very, this is also a very technical term as well. The uncanny comes from Freudian psychology, which l- literally just means that it's these, un, when these unconscious desires and urges come to the surface and dream, and you feel almost like you should understand what this is about, but you can't quite, right? It's the return of this desire that you think that you should understand, but you just don't quite understand it. That's the uncanny. And it often seems strange and weird. And so defamiliarization falls into a similar category, but this defamiliarization is an intentional artistic process where the author is attempting to make the world seem strange to you. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it so that you are forced to, I mean, one a way to summarize all this, because this was just academic prose and they're attempting to sound very scientific. And really all they're saying is that it's like a slap in the face and the author, the, the, artist is trying to make you come to terms with the fact that most of what you look at in life, you do very automatically without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to force you to stop and think about the fact that these things in life can be very strange. And so you had the one, like the one story, story in the second part where, about the guy who, oh, what's, he's, they are just supposed to catalog every historical event, mm-hmm. Right. And so what was that story called? I forget the name of it. I don't have a... But it's because, and he's talking about, you know, like even a piece of cellophane in the grass blowing in the wind. To them, that's an important thing to notice. And um, I'm pointing at the window as though there's a piece of cellophane out there. And I looked. (laughs) There's not. I'm the dummy that looked. I think that's the particular image he uses, but it's like every detail matters in other Mm. words. Like, and we get so caught up in the process of our own life that we often don't pay attention to these details. Now... All they're doing is, so these guys were attempting to describe how like poetic language works. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and listen to our poetry episodes, there's some, I mean, we agree with some of this, like poetry is meant to help you to learn to take delight in the details of life, Mm -hmm. things that you might often, not just the details of life, but also the details of our language, the beauty of it, the the sound and the rhythms of it. And it combine, and then by combining these two things, you get the peculiar aesthetic responses that poetry gives to you. That's like just the basic definition of what, mm. and so they're trying to describe how poetic language works. And they're saying it largely works through this defamiliarization. Why is that important? Well, because that's what Milhauser, I would, my thesis would be that that's what Milhauser does. He Absolutely. participates in this sort of defamiliarization process. And that that's why I wanted to bring this up. That was going to be the last thing that I brought up in my context, but uh, it looks because it's like the one rabbit I had in my hat today. But mm-hmm. you guys were already getting to it. Look at that. Yeah, there you, you beat go. me to the punch. Well, it's like we laugh every day. Now let's take a to take the title story as an example. Now let's take a step back and actually see what's in there and see some of the in that in this case orgiastic release and all yeah. these things. So it's something familiar, but he recontextualizes it in a way that shows you what's weird, what's creepy, what's dangerous. Yes. About it. And that's, and so I was, my only comment about defamiliarization, the, the, where you have to use discernment Mm -hmm. is that they often kind of like Baudelaire when he said that you have to also look at the nasty side of the city. And that's where, so we talked about him last week with T.S. Eliot, with our cats episode with T.S. Eliot. 
defamiliarization shares in that. Like, so their theory of the carnival is that, you know, once a year, so it was talking about the Mardi Gras and like that's at the heart of uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I actually think that's the novel they use Mm -hmm. that political, political systems. I hate that word systems, Mm -hmm. but anyways, they need these moments where those who are disenfranchised can come out and party. And it's really about the grotesque. Right. Oh, that's where we talked about it. it was with Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I remember. Okay. And so they really make a lot about the grotesque in literature and how grotesqueness allows things that would typically not be looked at to be looked at. Mm-hmm. And so that's the danger also with defamiliarization is that really what matters is for you to look at the things that you wouldn't necessarily notice and for the world to seem strange. And so that's where you get like the weird eraser head sort of mentality of David Lynch. Well, this whole time I've been thinking of the the most famous scene from David Lynch where the guy has the heart attack on the beautiful green lawn of with the perfect little suburban house. Yeah. And then we zoom in and we zoom in and we zoom into the grass and then Suddenly we're in this world of maggots and spiders and creepy things yeah. crawling all over the place. And and in the case of this book, it's the title story, Dangerous Laughter, which mm-hmm. just is kind of a sophomoric attempt at an allegory for sexual awakening. Yeah. One of the weakest stories. In the it book, is the I weakest think, story. Yeah. So Milhauser, he's really good at his trick, but it can kind of be one trick. Mm-hmm. And that's where the process of defamiliarization can get a little bit tedious. And I, and so if just a little historical background to where like some other artists who were into defamiliarization, really only one worth mentioning, which would be Borges. And, and Borges is kind of the intellectual father, I would say, of Milhauser. Absolutely. And he's worth reading, but Borges can be pretty tedious as well. But it's the same sort of idea, these stories. So we had talked a lot about Borges in our magical realism episode. Yeah. Which we did with Midnight's Children. Midnight's probably, Children. Yeah. That's right. He died in 1986, and so I was going to say he didn't die that long ago. <laughs> I was going to say he never died. <laughs> he actually never died. He He's just immortal. Became, he just became a book. Um, <laughs> well, interestingly, given you talking about it being a repetitive trick, Borges very much agreed with you and gave up writing those kinds of stories right. at a certain point in his career. Yeah. Probably the true intellectual father of all of them would be Escher, and he was way before either of them. Mm-hmm. And so, with his mathematical paintings that, I mean, I think most people know who Escher is, right? You, you guys can, E-S-C-H-E-R. Mm-hmm. You can go out and look him up if you've never seen an Escher painting, but it's like these, you get to kind of see it with um, people have seen Inception mm-hmm. where, you know, you can make a walkway that somehow goes up and down at the same time. So you can never escape this loop. And it's this uh, all playing with illusion. Dr. Strange. Yeah. Dr. Strange. Mm-hmm. That sort of, that exactly. Dr. Strange. That sort of fascination with um, appearances. And Milhauser is very much involved with that as well. In fact, his most famous book became The Illusionist. It became the the the, the, the Edward Norton yeah. movie. Yeah, and so he's very much concerned with this other sort of sideshow, but more not so much the the Barnum sideshow, the other creepy, mysterious Houdini sort of sideshow mm-hmm. where you oh, the Tesla mm-hmm. that would have been. In, Influential in that sort of brand of weird, strange America. Mm-hmm. And I think people know hopefully what I'm talking about when I say that. Yeah, okay. well, he loves what ifs and might have beens and almost beens and historical anomalies. and. But yeah, and like in that interview, it's particularly the American brand of it, which is through science and technology and architecture. The sort of expanse that you have with highways that then lead to the Often connected to art and commerce one way or another. Yes. And so uh, you see that very much with whatever that story was in this volume about the uh, Edison mm-hmm. ripoff, the wizard. The wizard of West Orange. Yeah. And so he'll give you this defamiliarizing process, but through the sort of American lens of technology and commerce and art, like you said, that was the whole point of Martin Dressler, was mm-hmm. a guy trying to build a, a hotel that contained the world. Right. Basically. And so- and with these, so you get people trying to build the Tower of Babel, basically, and it failing, interestingly. Mm-hmm. People trying to catalog every detail of life, all these the story, uh, these weird stories. My favorite in the volume being the death of Elaine Coleman. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think it's the most successful story. Yeah. And I think it's probably because it's the most unique. It yeah, stands I, out the most from the others. I think that's probably true. But anyways, yeah, so that's Milhauser. Those are kind of the big conceptual things I wanted to get across before we dive in. Um, so just a little, I mean, there's not a whole lot to say about him. He was married for a little while. <laughs> He's no longer married. 
he won the night um pulled a surprise in 97 for martin dressler and he's kind of been like jake said not a cult classic but he's been a novel for those who really like to look and try to find the authors who are worth reading who are still alive who want to take who want to make that effort mm-hmm. and he makes the short list and he was on the short list with well he would be up there with cormac mccarthy and dennis johnson until johnson died Mm-hmm. I was reading some more about Cormac McCarthy the other day, and he's really not a pleasant figure. You mean his, his personal life? Yeah, he's just not a not a nice guy. Yeah, don't say. No. What a surprise. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> but um, as far as I can tell, Milhauser seems just fine. He's very much the like- uh, He's like a dweeb with a mustache. Yeah, he's like Salinger. He doesn't do much. Yeah. He gives interviews every now and then, but people don't really see him out. He doesn't try to be this cultural figure. Mm-hmm. He's very interested in his craft and his art, and that's what he does. And he has it. He knows that he does this one thing well, and he does it over and over again. And it's in. He gives variety to it. I mean, I would say most of these stories engaged me in some level. Well, one thing I suppose we'll get there, but any one of these stories, if I just came across it in the New Yorker or some periodical like that, I would have. I would have loved it. It really, I would say, doesn't do them any favors to be stacked on top of each other, yeah. grouped the way that they are, and then grouped in categorizations that make it so you're getting some pretty repetitive yeah. like even if you just took this volume and mixed it up a little bit so you weren't yeah. getting all the architecture stories at once yeah it might not hurt anything oh i mean i guess if we're talking when we were talking about influences and in intellectual fathers you can't forget poe right yeah poe would be i would say probably poe and borges would he's like a hybrid of poe and borges actually a little bit poe borges a little kafka maybe yeah the- you get some of that strange weirdness a little bit of the existential absurd in there but really not so much absurdism with him. But I keep thinking of like symbolist painters. What's the guy with the apple in the in front of the face? Uh, There's Odilon Redone. Redone. Yeah, you have Odilon. Odilon Redone's the one that would do like the weird spider paintings with ivies that looked human and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess I was thinking of some of the surrealists like Magritte. Magritte yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Where... A lot of times, Magritte's famous for the guy with the apple in front of his face and stuff. Something's off about a lot of his pictures, but it's not always as overt as a floating apple. It can just be like, who are these people? Why are they standing here? What is this? It's yeah, making reference to something that's kind of uncanny and weird, but and tickles that the back of your consciousness that way, but is not doing anything explicit yeah. in the way that Poe does or even Bor- like Borges his conceits are really what if there was a library that contained all the books or what if you could touch an Aleph and suddenly see everything that was happening in the universe all at once generally yeah. speaking Milhauser keeps it a little bit more down to earth a little bit more yeah. vague yeah yeah so he's not as conceptual as that right but he so he's well I would say the difference then would be probably Borges is more, so the character is important to Milhauser, mm-hmm. even though it seems a lot of the times that he writes one type of character, right? but it's still character matters to him. While Borges is not so much character driven, he was more philosophical in his inquiries. Yeah, he really is completely conceptual. It's just like, yeah. here's a thing that happened or that yeah, you could so imagine. Borges is very close to probably like an Einsteinian thought experiment. Mm-hmm. It's just very extended and very um, whimsical. But it's meant to play with this one concept and idea and riff off of it. Like someone who's kind of a, in between both of these would be Italo Calvino. Mm-hmm. He, uh, I can't really recommend you read him. But in things like Cosmic Comics or If On a Winter's Night a Traveler or The Baron in the Trees, he does similar things to this where he'll, and he's very much, he is very character driven as well. Italo, I mean, he's good. Italo Calvino is very good, but he's very much Italy's version of Milhauser. Mm-hmm. These guys who are, Kind of taking what Borges did, but then adding fictional interests of character and plot and things like that into it as well. Yeah. Because the death of Elaine Coleman is a sad story. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing that probably makes it the most successful story in this book is it's it's connected to something yeah. that's we can empathize with. But it does. And so they are. And they're also postmodern in the sense that they're dealing, but they're more postmodern in the way that Kazuo Ishiguro is postmodern. Mm-hmm where they're dealing with kind of the aftermath of postmodernism. Right. They're not they're not the ones who created what we look at as postmodernism and in the sense that Beckett was. Right? They're not being inventive that way. They're taking more just traditional storytelling forms in dealing with the emotional aftermath of postmodernism. Yeah, they're not 
Millhauser doesn't break convention or push forms yeah. in any way. But they're still way. dealing so but they're still dealing with alienation. They're still dealing with guilt and sadness. I mean, that's at the heart of most of these stories is how does our responsibility towards others and our lack of taking responsibility, how how are we supposed to think of that now, today, mm-hmm. after postmodernism? So yeah. And so that puts him right there with Ishiguro. I mean, he's a contemporary with I'm thinking Ishiguro because we're about to do some more Ishiguro. Yeah. Really looking forward to that. That's him. There's not a whole lot to say about him. I mean, he was born in New York, grew up in the New New England area, pursued a doctorate in English at Brown, but never finished. I don't think we mentioned that about T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot also started his dissertation, but never finished. So how many, I wonder what the count of people we've read on the booking who actually finished their education. It feels like it would be low. It's pretty low. Most of these guys got into it because, well, (laughs) I think what most people find when they go to grad programs who actually love literature and the process of writing, Mm -hmm. you find out that not everybody in the system, I said it again, the system, I hate that word, the system. Mm -hmm. It's a poser word. Right. People, I mean, definitions matter and- I hear people using that word all the time, and it's just to posture themselves. Mm-hmm. It, it means nothing. Well, Brandon hates the system. I hate He's the system. not a big fan of the man either. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> or the machine. Yeah. You're always raging against that, I've noticed. I do rage against the machine, yeah. But despite all that rage, I feel like I'm a rat in a cage, Nathan. <laughs> uh, well, any more context about Milhauser? No, not really. Speaking of disappearances. Uh-oh, the disappearance. Of, the has, dis- he ever, has he ever been here? Jake Menzel? Or did he, when did he go? Did you notice him leaving? I don't know. He just. Did you realize, I mean. Was he here at all? There was that, I, if I vaguely remember, there might have been a missing sign out on the post for a while, but it's kind of weathered now and faded. Who are you talking about now? You remember Jake? Oh, the guy we used to. The or, guy we used to podcast, I think. Didn't we podcast with him? I mean, I remember we've done been doing a podcast now a long time. Brandon and Nathan do the booking together. Yeah, I, can, I swear there was there used to be a guy named Jake. Do you, you don't remember him? I mean, Big Wart something. Oh, the okay. His yeah. hips never lied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I remember yeah. hips. I remember a wart. Yeah, don't remember much else. I mean, it was kind of hard. I can picture the wart though. Yeah, the All, every hair. Oh man, especially that one. Would just stick out and curl. Yeah, I wanted to yank that thing. Like, get some tweezers, dude. Like, that'd be horrific. I mean, you never know. It could be like a plugging up, whatever would drain out when he picked it. Oh, yeah. And then he loses his psychic powers or whatever. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah, he was a Midnight's child. Yeah. Did we mention that Jake was born in Midnight of India's Day of Independence? Yeah. And was imbued with special powers? Maybe that's where he went. Maybe he got caught by. You know, her Madam Secretary, what's yeah. her name? <laughs> Something like that. I've <laughs> read the novel so many times, I should remember. All I can remember is the green and black hair. <laughs> Idris Elba. Idris Elba. Yeah. yeah. Ingrid Bergman. Tia Leone. Huh. Well, in any case, Brandon. Yeah. I guess we should continue doing this podcast that only features us. I guess. So. Well, let's keep going. Yeah. What baggage did you bring to Stephen Milhauser? Uh, okay. So I brought the baggage of... Martin Dressler, which I really enjoyed. I brought the baggage of having someone recommend his stories before. I never, I never had read them. Um, someone really liked, is it The Knife Thrower and mm-hmm. Other Stories? Yeah, I see it right there. The Knife Thrower and Other Stories. I never read them, but they recommended them. Said he was good. Yeah. I also brought the baggage of last year. I relied on Nathan a lot to help me find stories to do with my class that were short stories and were worth doing. And so I got The Death of Elaine Coleman and did that with my AP Lit class. And that went very well. It was the perfect story and introduced sort of the postmodern ennui that we had talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a great students story. Loved, loved them. Yeah, I think that was the first story I ever read by him. I encountered Milhauser in the New York Times Review of Books of all places, which I don't usually read. Nice. There's one book critic, modern book critic I like. His name is Michael Dirda. He writes for the Washington Post. And if you can afford to subscribe to the Washington Post, which I cannot, then you can read Michael Dirda. You can read Michael Dirda. And he's very good. I have a couple collections of essays by him. And he's just fun. He's well read. He likes really highbrow stuff and really lowbrow kind of pulpy stuff. And I recommend him. Anyway, that's me finished his PhD. (laughs) (laughs) 
Thinking of Bandon Brown. Uh, anyway, I read, I just happened to read like their top 10 books of 2011 or whatever Dangerous Laughter came out. Saw it in there and they described several of the stories, including Elaine Coleman, and it made it sound really intriguing. And I went to the bookstore and went to Borders, I think. Nice. Back in the day. Remember back then when you could go to Borders, grab a book and go sit at one of their tables? Yeah, Borders. And read. Bomb. And sometimes try to podcast and they'll ask you to leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, that was Barnes and Nobles. Was that Barnes and Noble? Yeah. Borders was the the superior one and the one that went out, out of business. Borders was superior. Yeah. I would go to Barnes and Well, Barnes and Noble is where I discovered. It was downtown Fort Worth mm -hmm. is where I discovered old Tolstoy. Yeah. I can't. No shame there for yeah. old Barnes and or Noble. But I miss those bookstores like that where you could just go and browse and then take a book and go sit by a window seat somewhere and maybe grab a coffee if they had a coffee. Yeah, me too. And there's something nice. I mean, I know everybody hates like the monopolization of book selling and all that, but there was something nice about going to a big, successful professional store where you could be sure to get a copy of War and Peace where, you know, there's yeah. the beauty of going to like an old timey bookshop or half price books. Those are fun too. But if you're looking for something specific, it's nice. You know what? I think I'm going to put a coffee bar into my new office mm -hmm. at my house, make one of my kids tend it. That sounds great. So I can feel like I'm in a bookstore and I'll browse and yep. I'll go sit down and grab a coffee. And I'll go, I'll come to your house. I'll set like a $10 bill on fire and it'll feel just like I've gone to a bookstore. There you go. <laughs> Maybe you can get me a bag and some receipt paper that I'll be, they'll yeah. sit in my car for the next four I'll do weeks. It. That sounds great, Nathan. It sounds great. Let's make it happen. Let's do it. Uh, yeah. So I read this New York Times review of books, review of Dangerous Laughter. Thought it sounded great. Got, got it. Read it. Loved it. Got other Milhauser, Martin Dresler, Knife Thrower, Barnum Museum. I've read it all. Wow. Yeah. And you have. I That's literally his oeuvre right there. That's, yeah. I have not read his other novel, whatever that's called. Edwin Muhauser or something like that? Yeah, I started it, but I never finished it. And wait a second. Something feels different now, Brennan. I think. Oh, yeah. Look. Did he, did he come back? Hi, guys. Hey, it's Jake. Oh, hey, Jake. Hey. Our friend that we remember and acknowledge oh, yeah. all the time. That's right. And do this podcast with. Definitely remember. Yeah. Definitely did not vaguely think you had disappeared, but couldn't quite remember whether or not you had. Or whether you existed at all. <laughs> I see. A little Milhauser getting in your heads there, huh? I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Hey, it's, sorry about that. It's, we'd, it's Oh, serious. Serious. The most bad of you. Well, it's perfect timing because, well, you're the host. You, you, <laughs> no, Brandon, go ahead. It's fine. It's perfect. It's fine. <laughs> it's perfect timing because we were just doing our baggage. Oh. So we're finished. So you can do yours now. Yeah. I'll do my baggage. Yeah. I'm sorry that I missed some of the context there. That's nah, fine. <laughs> um, Who's to say what you missed and didn't miss? Certainly not the listener because yeah. this is not a visual medium. Fair point. My baggage with Milhauser is uh, Nathan introduced me to Milhauser a couple years back and he was like crack for a minute. I read up Dangerous Laughter and maybe another volume of short stories or two. It's great. It was a fun little moment in the summer. Yeah. Summer is the right time to read Stephen Milhauser. Yeah, he's a good summer read. Yeah. Yeah. Fun read by the you beach. You could say early fall or late summer. If Those would be the to, two. Yeah. Maybe a particularly gray day at the beach. Yeah, a particularly gray day. But yeah. he's so his uncanniness often has so much to do with summer and childhood. Yeah, a lot of summer vibes. Memory and nostalgia that I, I really don't even think fall is quite as ideal as summer for him. I no. think that's right. So, Whereas with most things that would do, I would use the word uncanny, it would definitely be fall, fall or, yeah. or even winter. But yes. Milhauser is kind of more of a summer. He's a summer uncanny. He's a summer uncanny. Yeah. So nice. I've read this volume before once. I guess the only thing that I'll say is that it didn't quite have the potency on the second go as you did on the first go. I can see that. I found the same thing. I think the best stories held up and the best stories would definitely be Elaine Coleman and a room oh, yeah. with a view or whatever it's called, a room in the attic. Yeah, I agree. Those are the two best. Those stories are great. If, if you do nothing else, listeners, you could probably, I'm not going to say whether you could do this or not, but I bet you could like find these stories online or something like that. If you're that kind of unscrupulous person or, or maybe even find them for free at like the New Yorker. You know, your, ask, your, your yeah. one free article a month or whatever you could you could read. Or ask us to PDF it to you. Yeah, we're not going to do that because we are law-abiding citizens. Ask me to PDF it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Those stories really hold up. We are not, but Brandon will. Oh, yeah. 
um, price. So That's yeah, a joke. I, I won't. Yeah, no. Don't or you can me. just go to your local half price books and shell out two or three dollars and get a copy of Dangerous Laughter. Yeah, Stephen Mulhauser is the kind of guy that shows up in half price books quite a lot. Kind of person that people buy and they don't hang up. on to, I guess. That's too bad. You can. He's the kind of ri- he's the kind of writer who should have more esteem than he does. Well, he has esteem with the right crowd mm-hmm. for him to be. That's weird. Isn't he? I mean, I'm sure you talked about what he just teaches at a small community college or something like that. Where does he teach? He teaches somewhere. I don't think you even said, did you? No, I didn't say that. If he doesn't now, he did. Yeah. I think he taught for at least for a while at a small community college or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's right. Nothing special. Let's see. Skidmore College. You can, he's on right, my professor's there. Nice. Skidmore. He got a 4.83 quality. Nice. Okay. He's got some weird reviews. Um. Anyways, yeah. But yeah, Skidmore College is not, you know, known for being. A beacon of English literature. Yep, looks like he But a lot of these, but a, but a lot of these writers, that's what will happen. Is like so. I remember Dennis Johnson. He taught at um, like one of the branches of University of Texas, mm-hmm. the one down by the on the border, like near El Paso. So yeah, it's weird where they'll show up. Well, both of those guys probably in their retired in, their own in ways 2017. Enjoy that's just from Skidmore. From Skidmore, yes. they they probably just both like doing their own thing and not being. I mean, Milhauser, just if you're going to judge from the the character that he writes in every one yeah. of his stories and what he you you assume he's like, if you're allowed to make such value judgments based on reading his stories, he probably prefers to teach somewhere that no one's heard of and just do whatever the heck he I'm wants. I'm sure, and, and I completely pre- respect teach that. somewhere that no one's heard of and where nobody who's coming has actually heard of him. Of Stephen Milhauser, yeah, yeah. He thinks that he's all that special. I think yeah. that's I think that's right. There's a poet that I really like, but he teaches like down at Florida State University somewhere. No, I mean, these guys who are really respected and have st- street cred with their art, they often don't. So one, one of the reasons is like Harvard and Yale, the people they want are going to be the politicized yeah, yeah. things that make them are the the guys that everybody in the academy at the, that point thinks are the smartest. And so well, you came to Indiana University. Yeah. It's a public university and it's a well-known, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty top tier as far as public universities go but it's not it's Ivy not the League best or anything like that but you came here for a professor i did yeah so, so yeah well what do you guys think about old dangerous laughter jake said it didn't hold up as well as i, I would agree i think these stories might be mostly once reads you know they they, yeah. they 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 pack a nice wallop when you read them the first time and well that's i mean honestly that's what you expect that's what you're paying for with a short story. You're not really paying for something to return to. How many short story volumes? Okay, Dennis Johnson, you can come back to, but maybe Hills Like White Elephants. Flannery O'Connor. Well, no, not Flannery O'Connor, actually. But um, I've got a devilish grin right now. Yeah, I know you were being sarcastic. No, Brandon. (laughs) I'm going to interpret your sarcasm as sincerity and then say you're stupid. Well, I would say there's a couple exceptions. If you just love spending time with in a world or with a character like Sherlock Holmes, say people read okay. those stories again and again. But that's a, that's an anthologized. It's like e- even there, I don't know. I would be willing to argue that with Sherlock Holmes, once you've read, yeah, all of the mysteries, you've read them. Once you've read all of the Poirot things. You don't really need to go back and reread. You don't need to go back to that well. Yeah. Right. You know, and and if you're going to pick up Agatha Christie's short stories. What's wrong with you? (laughs) Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, first of all, what happened uh, to your brain? We tried that. Yeah. Didn't go so well. Didn't go so well for us. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, if you get through it once because you like, that's the sort of thing you like, even then, I don't think you come back to that well. Well, I guess all I really meant was sometimes you're in the mood for, a flavor of ice cream, you know, like I want chocolate. Oh, I could, I could go for a little Poe. It's a cold winter, creepy night in the wind. Oh, I could go for a little Sherlock Holmes and it doesn't really matter whether I've read it or maybe I half remember it. It's just like, I want that, that feeling. There's certain people that trade in feelings and even somebody like Arthur Conan Doyle kind of does if yeah. only because people like the arcana of, of that world of 22 B Baker street and all that stuff. And Dennis Johnson, and then the other exception to Jake's rule, which I agree with Jake's rule, by the way, would be somebody like Dennis Johnson because he's such a superb craftsman of language and there are a handful of people. Actually, Hemingway would be another one. Well, when, yeah. it, when it begins to uh, verge on I- into the world of poetry, that's when 
That's right. It really yeah. becomes something that you can keep coming back to, right? Right. Well, Dennis Johnson also, I guess this isn't a Dennis Johnson podcast, but his stories are so disjointed and associative that they're pretty hard to remember. Like <laughs> That's true. Fair <laughs> point. <laughs> you read one and then... Yeah, this I mean, reads like somebody who was on drugs. I, oh, I, it, well, it is. Yeah, <laughs> I read the... Was it The Largesse of the Mermaid? Mm-hmm. Which one of you has? <laughs> yes, I need to give that back to you. Well, you're supposed to give it to him yeah, first. I need to give it to Jake. <laughs> Great collection. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic, but I don't remember any of the stories. Me neither. And I read one pretty recently. It was about a guy that was dying, and then he remembered some other things, and then some other things happened. And then, but while you're reading it, you're convinced this is some of the best stuff you've read. Right. Well, and so. then there are certain images or turns of phrase yes. that do stick with you, right? Yeah. Yep. That you'll never, you'll never let go of. That's right. right. And I think Hemingway does the same thing with some dialogue and some descriptive passages. Oh, yeah, like, you don't need to go back to Hills with White Elephants for the story, except for as an example for students. But you do go back to it for the girl saying, please, 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 please. And for yep. certain effects that he achieves that are just like reading a Shakespeare soliloquy or yeah, something. Yeah, I've, I've read that story now twice over the last year mm-hmm. with students. And it's one that it's, it's a pleasure to go back to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, but I, I think you guys are right. This was my first time to read these stories. Even with Death of Elaine Coleman, I don't find myself really desperate to go back. Mm-hmm. And even reading it again, you're like, yeah, this is good, but I really don't want to read it. Not because I don't want to, because it's bad, mm-hmm. but just because I don't feel the need to. I don't feel like it's giving me anything beyond what the plot was. Right. His style is, then that's not, people, we shouldn't stylist, give yeah. people the impression that he's a bad writer. His style is actually pretty good. Mm. Yeah. No, his, his style is, is really fun. Very, yeah. very vivid. And the thing that's fun about him is he loves colors. And it's like his stories kind of take place in technicolor because everything's like yeah. these bright reds yeah. and greens and blues. And and he's really good at evoking very specific colors mm-hmm. in really casual feeling ways. Yeah. Yeah. He's yep. great. I mean, gosh, how much more do we want to say about Stephen Milhauser? Like, this is a good episode to maybe get people interested in him. Hmm. Um, I really think that he is, if you've never read Milhauser, you can't do a whole lot better than picking up a volume of Milhauser and, uh, uh, for your summer vacation, something like that. The only thing that I would say is that Miller, Milhauser can be so evocative uh, that some people find him personally dangerous. You know, we had that discussion, I agree, yes. We had that discussion when we did Martin Dresler, and I think it was late at night and I, f- I haven't gone back and listened to that. And that's been years now since we did that. But I feel like maybe I ceded too much ground in that. Like he is evocative. He is dangerous. He is sexual sometimes, never overtly, but sometimes pretty thinly veiled. So like mm-hmm. dangerous laughter. Dangerous laughter is not so thinly veiled. a short yeah. story. Is- it's about a bunch of girls that get together and tickle each other and laugh and they start laughter clubs and. It's very orgiastic. Yeah, and they just let themselves go and laugh and laugh and laugh and achieve some kind of release. So I guess it's not sexual now that I think about it. Not at all, Nathan. <laughs> That's absurd. Yeah, that was kind of kind of. I wasn't thinking that yeah. way. You guys must be perverts. Yeah, sorry about that <laughs> corny, uh, crappy literary analysis there, folks. Well, I'm, I'm willing to accept that we went too far there. I didn't feel the same way about him, about that. But I know that plenty of people do. Mm-hmm. At least... I have certain people in the back of my head that feel that way about him. Yeah, I've heard that too. But re- reading it this time, I really, I mean, none of these stories tempted me, if that's what we're saying. I mean, even the dangerous laughter seems more like someone trying- Analogy or- Yeah, an allegory an of allegory. this. Yeah, sorry, but it's not trying on. to get you to feel provoked. I didn't feel- the, I mean- He's not really the, interested in sex for sex sakes. He's interested in what's kind of uncanny or weird about sex in adolescence. Yeah, like, the, yeah. The, the real one that actually- I know exactly which one you're going to say. The room, with the, uh, room with the attic or the room in the, the room, attic or room whatever the name and, of that stupid yeah. one. That's the one that is- Yeah, that one's pretty uh, scandalous. And it's just a, nothing happens that's- "Quote unquote bad in it, but if people you keep expecting it to, people well, don't. Re- if you've read, if you've read, if you read Midnight's Children with us in the last year, it's just the idea of the bed sheet with the yeah. hole. Mm-hmm. But instead of it being, you know, a little story in a bigger story, it's kind of the whole story. They're just in the dark together. That's yeah, a girl that, for whatever reason, doesn't want to come into the light." And so the boy visits her, neighbor boy visits her in her room, if people haven't read it. And 
they get to be friends and they talk and they play little little games where she'll let him touch uh, different objects and he'll have to guess what they are and you can see how that could again have some sexual overtones folks it's certainly playing with sexual tension absolutely and i think it's in the fact that i mean spoiler when the light comes on he runs because the tension is what he was right digging yeah yes i, I would say precisely what like it was interesting, Brandon, you said there was nothing here that was tempting or whatever. But I think for a certain sort of person, that is exactly what actually makes Milhauser dangerous. Like if you read Edgar Allan Poe, it's just like, oh, the guy was being tortured by a horrible torture device. Oh, the Red Death killed. In other words, the uncanniness achieves a punchline, an ending, a culmination that brings it all to a head. And what yeah. you see is what you get. Oh, it was something terrible with Milhauser. It's always an unanswered question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's pretty intriguing. And so, to somebody who is prone to let their imagination run wild, with that open question, you leave the story and the story doesn't stop there in your mind. And that's where yeah, things I can, I can see that. People. It's precisely because he's not explicit, though. If he, if he ever was actually sexual, his stories yeah. wouldn't have nearly the weird, uneasy sexual feeling that they can. Or, yeah. or power. Or power, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I, and I would guess in that case, I would just advise that person to know yourself and stay away. Stay away. I don't think it's a condemnation of Milhauser because I would still recommend these stories to people if they're the if this doesn't sound like something that's gonna like with like unlike with Midnight's Children. Midnight's Children, you know, yeah, you, you have to really come at that with caveats. Mm, absolutely, because it's got stuff in it. I, I think another thing I might say is I don't know that I would recommend this book to adolescence to a certain kind of person even who's older who i mean what i really want to say is it plays with enough of these themes these sexual themes these themes of power and of the difference between being a child and being an adult that's that's the world that milhauser likes to play in without and it being takes any a more certain specific kind of maturity to be able to to appreciate what's good about that without getting sucked into what's bad about it and in some ways, it takes a certain kind of maturity and understanding uh, what's happening to you as a reader. Mm -hmm. and this is a better book be for people to... who like to read books, honestly. I want to say, yeah. like, we are more impervious to this because... We, we see what he's doing, right? Like, we... it's hard to... I mean, he 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 plays people like a fiddle. He can He can get into your head and make you see and smell and taste things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a way that very few authors really have the power to do. So if you don't have the maturity and the experience of understanding how an author is working on you, he is the kind of person that can that can just sweep you away and take you places and send you down a path without you realizing it. And so it takes both a sort of maybe sexual maturity, but also just a maturity, maturity when it maturity. comes to... Yeah, story, aesthetic maturity. Uh, yeah, I guess. an aesthetic mat uh, a maturity when it comes to reading and storytelling and things like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I guess the way I would think of it is that it, I would understand if this is if he's a writer who you admire, but it would concern me if he was your favorite writer. Yeah, I I think that so, that's I think that that's true. Yeah, there I, I will say though that there are very few people who I would love to step into a alternate d dimension and just steal their shtick. Just publish their stories as my own. Oh, album. yeah. It'd be fun to be Milhauser. It'd be fun to be, be Milhauser. Yeah. He is what, yeah. I, if I had a writing career like Milhauser's, I would be perfectly satisfied. Right. <laughs> I, I greatly admire him. I, I agree with what Brandon's- Pulitzer Prize suits yeah. you well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, great. he is like the kind of guy that I love. He can tap into my subconscious, make me think of dreams that I've had. I mean, he, he is in touch with the uncanny that I feel about the world and he makes me see the uncanny and the mundane in a way yeah. that's pretty powerful. It's the same with a lot of, like, I, I would well, have the same thing to say about Poe. Yeah. So. Well, I've never read uh, somebody that as I've been able to so clearly draw the line from that person to where I feel like Nathan gets his inspiration from mm -hmm. just in terms of style. And that was back I mean, we were working and writing stories in a very different way than we weren't doing podcasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a long time ago. But yes, I think that I, Milhauser was very important. I was like, whoa. So you've grown I, and changed. I can't believe then, you but... could do this. I mean, yeah. now that Milhauser's kind of opened up that world for me, it's like, okay, well, now there are other things that you can do actually too. And those are even mm -hmm. more fun. You but, found your own voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was fun, you know, when you're, oh, I didn't know that 
an artist that a somebody writing could quite touch these particular chords in my mind because yeah. it's not the same thing as supernatural literature and it's not the same thing as realism if we have had to compare it to something that we've done i'd say this is closest to kind of magical realism and the effect that yep it achieves yeah no and i think a lot of people have that experience especially people who want to be writers like for me there was tolstoy but then also as far as just enjoying poetry and and finding t.s Eliot kind mm-hmm. of opened that and so a lot of my younger stuff was just trying to rip him off yeah so and you have to grow past that. You have to grow past. Yeah. You have to grow from TSLA yeah. into cats. That's right. Yeah. yeah. What a great place to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, folks, we got to be done. And I don't know if we're going to come back because I, I, on Millhouse, or at least, because I don't think that there's probably much more to say or be gained from going through this story by story. But I recommend that you read this book if you've enjoyed this discussion and think that these are the kinds of things that you might be interested in reading. He's a very talented and interesting I agree. Writer. Anything else to say about him, Jake? Nope. All right. Uh, We will be back next time. Let me run us through some patrons very quickly. Yeah. Because our patrons need to be shouted out. And, of course, the way to do that is to go to patreon.com forward slash the booketing. Give $10 or more, and you will get a shout out like the following. Guys, I'm just going to burn through this as fast as possible, and you guys can shout them out. Robert Rondo, the Lovebirds, the Anthony Dodgers, Dodgers, Little Anthony Scar, Story, the Immortal Chelsea, Jimmy Bean, the Little Annie Pogley, Lily of the Valley, Andrew and the Lovebird, the Keith Master, David's Mighty Men Trucking, John and Jill, Little Baby Max, Jane and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and also see us losing Billy Joe, Fizz, Fairy Princess, the Mother Wonder, and the Mother of Council Prime, Adam, Jeremy, the Dark Hood, the Lord of Death, David, not me, Maya! Red Avenger, Judith Lady of Justice, Danny the Dude, DJ Sammy G, Benny and Danny Tiberius, Eric and Catherine from Beyond the Window Breaks, Professor and Lady X, Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan, Lavender's Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan, I love you too. No constructor, Mary Cheap, the Fair and Fair and Main Chloe, Anthony was cold and hazel, the Villarreal in pursuit of cheese. They do hate cheese. Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger, Rachel. Libertine Thomas, Midnight Ninja, Ellen, Queen can get out, Eric and Kate, the Camp Champ Kings, who are warm and love bees, Maddie, 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 Jamie Sunshine, Taylor, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, Laura, the Keeper of Eternal Light, Cold Steel, Cody, Jacqueline, the Librarian, Vibrarian, John Babadilly, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Daniil, his mate. Captain Daniil and his mate. And of course. Yes. Saxophone Alex. Saxophone Alex. That's right. All right, folks. We'll see you next week, probably for some Lord of the Rings. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. (sighs) More like Gord of the Rings. Oh, boy. Is it Halloween already? (laughs) If only.